Well, please turn your Bibles to Judges 19 through 21. This is the chapter I'm going to read through. We're in verses nine, uh, chapters 19 through 21. What has happened is this. In chapter 19, there's a terrible crime that is committed, and we'll talk more about that. Chapter 20, there is a terrible civil war as a result of that terrible crime. And in that civil war, it's the tribes against the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. And then we come to chapter 21 as, as the nation of Israel realizes that there are only 600 men left in the tribe of Benjamin, they have no wives. We come to this very, very strange chapter as they come up with a very strange resolution to the problem. Uh, this, this, is, this is morality in a land with no king. Last week was religion in a land with no king. This week we're looking at what morality in a land with no king looks like, and it's not pretty. Verse 1 of chapter 21, with that as the context. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? The next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning those who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from the Lord this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord, we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every man and every woman that is laying with a male, you shall devote to destruction and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved, alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Verse 16, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be blotted out from them, yet we cannot give them wives from our own daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin." And when their fathers or their brothers come to, us to complain to us, we'll say, grant them graciously to us. 
because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to us, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. And then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Heavenly Father, as we come to these difficult passages, we ask for your mercy and your grace. Help us to rightly understand what you would have us know and help us to live with Christ as our King. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think most people think of themselves as, as pretty moral people, people who want to be doing the right thing. Christians, non-Christians, I think everyone thinks of themselves as, as, as essentially a moral person, or at least as a person who, who wants to be moral. And yet, due to the fall, our ability to behave in a consistently moral way is, is fundamentally flawed. We, we can't be moral in the way that we desire to be. In fact, there's a, an episode of the TV show, The Simpsons, in which uh, the character, uh, Mr. Burns, who is a, a very wealthy but evil man, has lost his fortune. And so Mr. Burns goes to, to, to little Lisa Simpson, who's kind of the, the moral center of the show, and, and he asks her what he should do. He asks for her advice. And she encourages him to, to regain his fortune through recycling and being environmentally friendly. And so he takes her advice and he begins to regain his fortune and he creates this, this recycling plant. And there's a, a moment where he asks her, little Lisa, Mr. Burns asks Lisa to tour the recycling plant with him. And they're walking around and she's talking about how lovely it is. And Mr. Burns says, hold on, you haven't seen the best part. And so he takes her out to the, the edge of the recycling plant overlooking the ocean, and she sees that he has taken these, these, these plastic rings and he's created this conveyor belt, and he's, he's bringing up animals from the sea and creating this, this food, out of this, this little sludge stuff out of, this, out of these, these animals. And he says, this, this sludge is made from 100% recycled animals. And as Lisa watches in, in horror at what he's done, she, she's nauseated, and she comes to this conclusion. She looks at him and she says, you haven't changed at all. You're still evil. And when you're trying to be good, you're even more evil. <laughs> now, now, what Lisa says about Mr. Burns there in that TV show is also true of what happens here in the book of Judges. These, these people are so evil that even when they try to do moral actions, they're, they're more evil. And, and the same thing that's true of the people of the book of Judges is true for you and me. What could be said about them could be said of all of us. We try to be good, but on our own, even as we try to become good, we can become even more evil. We, we try to do what is right, but as we try to do what is right in our own eyes, we find that morally we are, we're blinded. We're blinded by our love for ourselves. We're blinded by our love for the world. We're blinded by our, our flesh. We are unable to see rightly what morality is. And so even as we try to do good things, without Christ as our king, 
we, we simply become more evil. In fact, here's the, the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. Only when Christ is my king can I live in a consistently moral and, and God-glorifying life. Only when Christ is my king can I live a consistently moral and God-glorifying life. That's, that's the only way that I can, can be moral, ultimately. That's the only way that I can live in a way that pleases God, is if Christ is my king. Now, to explore this, this main idea, we're going to ask this question. We're going to ask, what are the signs of moral decay in a culture with no king, with a culture without King Jesus. So, big statement we're thinking about is that Christ is our king, and only when Christ is our king can I live a consistently moral and God-glorifying life. And now we're asking this question, what are the signs of moral decay in a culture with no king? And we're going to real quickly kind of walk through these chapters and, and see signs of moral decay, what, what a culture looks like without Christ as its king. And as we see these signs of moral decay within a culture, we're, we're hopefully going to see that tendency in our own heart, repent, and continue to place Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. So nine signs, obviously not going to have the time to talk through all of them at, at, in depth. And in fact, chapter 19, uh, we are not going to to, to spend uh, maybe some of the time in there that we, we might otherwise. This is a, this is a very a uh, very hard passage. In fact, my dad read through the Bible, uh, my family read through the, the Bible in the evenings, and, and Judges 19 is the only chapter in the Bible that we, we skipped. Okay, my dad said, okay, you guys can go read this on your own, but because the younger kids here, we're not going to read this together. So Judges 19, we're going to talk about, but we're going to talk about kind of more broadly in some areas, and so you can go back and, and read some portions of that as well. But going to go through these nine signs. Again, some more in-depth than others. But here's nine signs of moral decay that help me understand that only when Christ is my king can I live a consistently moral, God-glorifying life. Number one, first sign of moral decay in a culture. God's design for the family is altered. Now, we've talked about this multiple times in the book of Judges, so I'm not going to go into great depth here, but look at the story. As the story begins, we're in Judges chapter 9, and just like last week I said, count the red flags, we can do that as we begin Judges 19 as well. Judges 19 begins, and it tells us that there is a Levite, and he has a concubine. Now, no one in this chapter is, is named. There's a Levite, there's a concubine, there's an old man, there's a father-in-law. None of the characters have, have names. And I think what the narrator is saying here is that these people could be anyone and everyone in Israel at this time, okay? So there's a Levite, and he has a concubine. You know, red flags all over the place here. Every time we see this, this concubine-type relationship in the book of Judges, it's, it's a bad thing. This person, is, is, this Levite, is living with this woman in a way that she's a, a second-class wife. He's not living with her in obedience to what God has said a man is supposed to do in relationship with his wife. Now, the story gets worse, this Levite, who's living in the hill country of Ephraim with his concubine, so he probably has another wife and now takes this woman as a second-class wife, and there's some sort of conflict within the marriage. It's kind of unclear exactly what that conflict is. The ESV, I think, uses the phrase that she was unfaithful. Uh, other translations say that she was unhappy with him. There, there's some sort of marital conflict, and 
and she leaves. And perhaps her unfaithfulness was simply leaving the marriage relationship or leaving the family relationship. In his eyes, she's being unfaithful. Whatever the case, she leaves the hill country of Ephraim and goes back to her father's house. She's a young woman, and she goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. And so the Levite just determines to go back, get his concubine, his Sometimes the text refers to her as his wife, and so he goes back, and he's talking to uh, her kindly, the text tells us, trying to win her back, and her father-in-law, his father-in-law, welcomes him into the home, and this, this strange story of hospitality takes place. The Levite is there in the home of his concubine and her father. He's there for five days and four nights. And it's a very strange story. He keeps trying to leave and go back home, and his father-in-law keeps telling him, no, no, stay, stay longer, stay longer, stay longer. And it's, it's very uncomfortable the way that whole interchange takes place. And then if, if you read the text, you'll also notice something else. The woman never makes an appearance and, and when they're eating and having this party and having a good, good time, it's, it's the two of them. So it says that the two of them are eating and drinking and having a grand old time. It's, it's like she's not even there. The whole introduction to the story, the writer of Judges is telling us, the situation with the family in the land of Israel in the time of the Judges is not good. And this one guy and this one woman and this one father-in-law are a, a perfect example of how twisted and perverted the family is, the, how extensive the moral decay in the land of Israel is at this time. Now, again, we've talked about the family already. I'm not going to go into great detail in, in this, this first sign of moral decay, but, but we recognize that in a place where there's moral decay, where Jesus is not king, God's design for the family is altered. Number two, second sign of moral decay in a culture. Number two, strangers are vulnerable. In a culture where there's moral decay, the stranger is endangered. He's vulnerable, or she's vulnerable. The story continues. It begins in in verse 10. The the father-in-law one more time has has uh, implored the Levite to stay just a little bit longer, a little bit longer, but the day is wearing on, it's the beginning of the fifth day, and the, the Levite says, no, no, no I'm, I'm not going to stay any longer. And so he gets up, and he, he's in Bethlehem, and he begins going north back to the hill country of Ephraim. And as he does so, he comes to the area around Jerusalem where the Jebusites live, and his servant who is with him says, hey, what do you think about stopping here? And the Levite says, no, no, we got to keep going. I don't want to stay with these foreigners. Let's keep traveling to Gibeah, or even maybe a little bit beyond. Now, the irony in this story is this. The Levite is concerned about the danger of staying with these foreigners. But as the story progresses, it's not going to be the foreigners who endanger him. It's going to be his own countrymen, fellow Israelites. He he tells his servant, no, no, we're going to keep on going. They go to the town of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is a town within the tribe of Bethlehem. And he comes, and they're kind of late. And so he and the concubine and the servant are there in the town square, and it's getting late. And an old man comes and says, what are you doing here? You are, you're in danger here. You need to come back with me. Stay at, in my home. Now, the old man is from the hill country of Ephraim 
as well. So he's kind of a kinsman of this, or, or at least from the same region as this Levite. As you continue reading this story, what's happening? There is danger and darkness that, that permeate every verse. And as the story continues, and we see that the old man's concern for his guests were, were well-founded, you see that the, the, the danger doesn't exist to the people who are within the city. In other words, the other people of Gibeah aren't in danger. And as the story continues and the, the guests in this man's house are endangered, the people of Gibeah do nothing. In other words, these, these people who present a danger to the Levite and his traveling companions don't represent a danger to the other people who are part of their community. And, and, the, and the people who are part of this community throughout the story do nothing to interfere with what these worthless fellows, the text calls them, are doing. In other words, in a culture that is experiencing moral decay, our concern is not with the stranger. Our concern is with, with ourselves. Is, is my family okay? Am, am I protected? I'm, I'm less concerned about the dangers to other people and the difficulties that others face as long as I'm okay. A culture with moral decay says, I don't care. Our moral focus, when we're trying, again, this is the, the twisting of morality. Our moral focus says, I don't care about those endangered. I only care about myself. Am I and my stuff protected? And I'm le- much less concerned for the plight and protection of those who are from different backgrounds or cities or cultures. You think about even the crisis that we're in right now. I mean, here, here's the reality, frankly. I, I'm not in that much danger. I mean, sure, if I was, you know, in my 20s instead of my 40s, you know, in terms of the physical danger that COVID presents, I'd, I'd be even better. But, but in reality, you know, in my early 40s, physically, I'm not in that much danger. If, if we, you know, open up society and, and you know, I, I get sick, I'm, I'm statistically, I'm, I'm going to be fine if the Lord wills. And, and, if, this, and if society stays closed, I, I'm still probably going to be fine. You know, I, I, I'm in a, a, a nice church. I don't think you, you're not, not going to let me starve. My, you're not going to let me lose my home. I, 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 I feel pretty secure financially as well. In other words, no matter what happens in this crisis, open up, stay closed, I, I'm good to go. Now, if my, if my moral reasoning is, is th- that means everything's okay, there's a huge problem there. In reality, there are segments of our population that that if we stay closed or if we open both of those scenarios, they're, they're in significantly more danger than I am. If, if they're health issues, but they, they're, they're financially not well off, and so they're going to need to work, and they're going to need to put themselves in some, some dangerous situations potentially, even with their health problems. If my concern is not for the vulnerable, I represent part of the moral decay within a culture. Whenever Christ is my king, what happens? When Christ is my king, there is no stranger. I recognize my moral responsibility to, to care for those who are, are the, the weakest of society. Hospitality is an outgrowth of the work of the Spirit within me. We think about Gaius in 3 John. So one of the characteristics of moral decay is a lack of concern for the vulnerable. They're, they're in danger. And when, when Christ is my king, I'm concerned about the stranger. A third characteristic of moral decay in a culture, sexual perversions 
are unrestrained. Now, I'm going to actually have kind of three characteristics. I said through verse 30 here, but really you go through verse 28. And I'm going to give you kind of three, three signs of moral decay in these verses. And let me just kind of very, very broadly say what happens here. Here's what happens next. Some worthless fellows come to the door of the old man, and they begin pounding on the door, and they demand that he throw out the Levite to them so they can abuse him. The old man says, no, no, that's not going to happen. And then he says something, something just bizarre. He says, well, let me give you my, my virgin daughter and this guy's concubine, and you can abuse them instead. And they continue to, to, to pound against the door, and finally the Levite throws out his concubine to these men. They abuse her. He goes to bed. He wakes up in the morning, and he finds her at the door. Presumably, and the text is very ambiguous about this, but presumably dead. He tells her, get up. She doesn't respond. He takes her, he puts her on the donkey, and leaves. Here are signs of of moral decay in a culture with no king. One, or, or, or a third here, sexual perversions are unrestrained, which, which I've, I just said. And what we see here in this story, without going into all the details, we see here that the story really mirrors the story of Sodom and the sexual violence that's planned by these men that the text calls worthless fellows. They've decided they want to view, abuse the Levite, and why shouldn't they? Without a king to tell them no, why shouldn't they? They fail to contemplate what God's law says concerning violence, concerning homosexuality, concerning care for the stranger, concerning so many things they don't care. In a land with no king, there's a belief that the individual has the capacity to decide for him or herself what sexual expression is and even what the purpose of sexuality is. There's a focus on self. And you'll notice that even the the Levite and the old man are perverted in their thinking here. Now what happens when Christ is king? When Christ is king, my my, my sexual expression is not unrestrained. I recognize that Christ is the king over this area of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality, flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The culture in a land with no king says there should be no restraint on my sexuality, and any sort of restraint represents repression. The person who says Christ is my king says, I understand that I I am now a slave to Christ, and in slavery to Christ is freedom. I'm going to be obedient to him because my body belongs to him. He's my king. Here's a fourth sign of moral decay. A fourth sign of moral decay is that moral reasoning is, is perverted. In other words, the ability to, to think about morality rightly. What's so shocking about this story? There, there's several things that are just shocking and, and make you, you sick. 
But one of the most shocking things is the old man's response. Here's the moral guy in the story, the, the hospitable guy. He looks at the situation, he says, okay, I, I know that, that violence against a host is wrong. I know that, that sodomy is wrong. I know those things are wrong. So let me think about this. Oh, I know. I guess the best thing in this situation is to, to throw out my daughter to these men and the concubine. It's perverted. It's sick. And in a culture that doesn't have Christ as his king, what happens? We, we, we think we're being moral. We, we think we're making right decisions. But as, as we have some good thoughts about good moral things, our, our hearts are so twisted, our, our thoughts are so evil, we begin to, to pervert what morality even is. It's what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, look, don't walk like the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is our heart apart from King Christ. By God's common grace, we all have some good moral thoughts. So we say it's good to... It's good to care for women. It's good to allow um, all members of society to to pursue those things that are going to bring them joy. But then we make these these crazy applications. Therefore, abortion is a good thing. You see, we're we're twisted in our morality. We have some good thoughts, but good conclusion A, good conclusion B leads to tragic conclusion C. It's perverted. We're perverse. What, is, what happens when Christ is my king? It's what happens, it's what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and in revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, where the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind. might. Whenever Christ is our king, our ability to, to trust in Christ is enabled. We look to him and we say, look, here's my moral thinking, but now I'm going, to, I'm going to submit myself to you. A fifth thing that happens, and I want to be very gentle here in terms of how we talk about this, but a fifth thing that happens in a culture with no king, a sign of moral decay, women are abused and exploited. In a culture with no king, brothers and sisters, we know that women are abused and exploited. Every man in this chapter views the women as objects to be used for their own preservation or gratification. It's sick. And it doesn't end in the book of Judges, does it? Let's let's talk about this a little bit. Our culture tells us that we live in a more enlightened time, but, but we know that's not true. Think about, I'm going I'm to go obvious, maybe to less obvious. So, so very obviously, just, just an example, think about the pornography industry. The abuse and exploitation of women takes place in, in so many ways. And the pornography industry tries to sell society on the lie that, look, the people who are involved are in power. They're doing what they want to do. This is a healthy expression. I, I read a story this past week about a, a young woman who had been, sadly, as, as many women are, had been sexually abused as a child 
entered into the pornography industry and by age 23 was, was dead by suicide. Her, her husband had been married to other women in, the old, in what we politely call the adult film industry, and, and both of those women had, had suffered terribly as well. One had died of uh, a drug overdose, and another had, had been institutionalized. Uh, the, the things the pornography industry does to women are horrific. And, and brothers and sisters, what I would say to you is if this is an area in which you're struggling pornography, understand, look, your participation in pornography helps fuel a system that preys on women. Women who are often the victims of child abuse and struggle with mental health and substance abuse issues. And you say, okay, fine, that's, that's the pornography industry. Of course that's bad, but, but brothers and sisters, think about it. I mean, if, if anything has happened over the past few years, it's exposed the incredible hypocrisy of, of both public and private figures who have used and exploited women who were vulnerable. And, and many women, many women were, were victims of, of men who were desiring to use women for their own gratification. You say, okay, well, that's out there in the world. Of course, that's bad. Brothers and sisters, it happens in the church. The statistics on women who've been abused, I believe, and, and there's a lot of different statistics, but let's, let's just say, according to some, one in four young women have been even, we'll limit it to, to sexual abuse, have been sexually abused, according to one study I saw. And if that's true, what does that mean for our community of faith? Whatever the number is. If that's true, what, what does that mean for our community of faith? It means, this, it means this, this problem is not just out there in the world, it means that there are women who we love and are to care for who have been victims of, of terrible things. We're living in a culture that is in decay. And as Christ is our king, we, we recognize that decay and we say, we're not going to live that way. Let me just give a couple applications here. If, if Christ is our king, if Christ is our king, you know, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, treat young women as, as sisters in all purity. And, and men and women who are going to submit to Christ as their king are not going to view women as objects to be abused and exploited. You know, what happens to, to, in Christ? Christ doesn't use his bride. Christ does, he doesn't throw his, his, his bride out to the, to the wolves, to the, the worthless fellows. What does Christ do? Christ lays down his life for his bride. He doesn't give up his, his bride to, to be used and abused. He lays down his, he sacrifices his own life for his bride. And let me just give a couple applications here. First of all, brothers, brothers, the men in our church, the church must be a place where women are cared for. Pornography or pornography light, lust, that cannot be part of your life. And if it, if it is, seek accountability and talk with people who will help you treat women the way that God would call us to treat his fellow image bearers. Secondly, brothers, their needs must come before our own in, within our homes and within the church. There's something essential there's something essential about biblical manhood that demands we lay down our lives to the women in the church. A third application, where there is abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse has occurred, we have to understand this. Yes, the church is a place where people can be forgiven, but the church is not a place where abusers can hide. 
The church is a place where we must confront sin. And sisters, to the women in the church, I'd say this. You have to help our church follow King Jesus in this. Lovingly challenge the men who are failing to care for women. Call leaders to account if we're not holding other men accountable. Expose sin as, as, as you're aware of things. Expose sin in a healthy way and allow us to, to help do that and, and help provide safe environments. You know, if, if the statistics are true, there, there are many women who are part of our church who, who have suffered terrible things, and many of them feel perhaps shame or fear as they, as they think about talking to other people. Sisters, help us provide safe environments in our Bible studies, in our care groups, in one-on-one discipleship where, where women can have the ability to come and feel safe. We're not shocked. We're not shocked that evil exists. When someone tells us something bad that's happened, it's not like you know, this, this audible gasp. We're aware that sin happens, and we're going to be a safe place where people can talk about it. Number six, the sixth sign of decay. Passions, passions in a culture of decay where there's no king are manipulated and inflamed. What happens when there's no king? What the Levite does is bizarre. He sends a gruesome message throughout the, the land of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's, it's, it's designed to inflame. Now, was what the men of Gibeah did terrible? Absolutely. Should they have been dealt with? We'll talk about that. A hundred percent. And yet, what does the Levite do? The Levite takes the situation and exploits it. Whenever he, he sends out this message, just, it's designed not to have justice occur, but vengeance. And in fact, as he, as he recounts what's happened in chapter 20, you, you can read that. He, he tells what happened. He said, uh, I, I went to Gibeah. I spent the night. The leaders of, the, of Gibeah rose against me. They surround the house. They meant to kill me. They violated my concubine. She's dead. That's a highly selective retelling of the story. Brothers and sisters, in a place with no king, when Christ is not our king, people are easily manipulated. And here's the strange thing. There's common grace in the world, right? And sometimes a desire to do the right thing is, is perverted and goes in strange directions. Our flesh allows us to become outraged so easily and do ungodly things. We're all angry about injustice, but, but, but the, in that anger, we're, we're, our, our flesh manipulates it. Our, our, our passions are inflamed and manipulated, and we tend to do ungodly things in the midst of our anger. Now, what happens when Christ is our king? When Christ is our king, our, our anger can't be exploited. When Christ is our, our king, our flesh isn't used and exploited by the enemy. You know, what, what, is, what does Paul say in, in Galatians? The signs of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all those things, when I see those things in my life, what I, what I recognize, I recognize I'm not living with Christ as my king. My passions are simply getting, getting inflamed. And maybe I'm passionately outraged by something that's good to be um, outraged by in terms of a, a pure sense. But instead of responding in a godly way to something outrageous, I'm, I'm responding in a way in which my flesh is being manipulated and inflamed. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and what a great passage for our lives right now, right? 
He says, look, be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It goes on. He says, for what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good, if, listen, this, if you do good, so you're doing good and suffer for it, so the people that God has put in positions are, are not doing what they're supposed to do, if you do good and suffer for it, you, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You hear that? Whenever someone in authority over us does something wrong and we, re, and we respond in the right way, that's a gracious thing of God. When God puts un, good, when God puts bad leaders over us, sometimes that is a gracious act of God. Why? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, listen to this, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That, that, that's the model that Christ presents us. It, it's this, this, this beautiful balance, isn't it? Because it's not saying that, that bad leaders are good. It's not saying, okay, this, this thing is a good thing and, and I should celebrate it. That's what some, I guess I have to submit, so good, good job. No, it's, it's not saying that. But it's also saying my model for how I submit is, is Christ. What does Christ do? He doesn't revile in return. He doesn't act in the flesh. He simply continues to entrust himself to the the God who judges justly, not going along with wickedness, not going along with evil, but continuing to trust in Christ and trust in in God who's going to judge justly. You know, sometimes it's hard to submit, but it's not cowardly, it's it's not weak to refuse to become inflamed whenever things are, are tense. Sometimes the, the, the hardest thing to do is, is to simply be, be meek in response to outrageous conduct. Again, this is not saying that we let outrageous conduct stand. It's saying the way in which we do it is not to become inflamed and impassioned by the flesh. It's not a sign of, of moral courage to become inflamed. Number seven, I'm going through these quickly. Number seven, sign of moral decay. Evil within my own tribe Evil within my own tribe is excused or defended. So what happens next? Passions are inflamed and they come to the people of Benjamin. They say, give up the tribe of Gibeah. And, 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 and by the way, again, that should have, like, the people of Benjamin should have responded by saying, this is outrageous and we will deal with the people who did this. Injustice should have been fierce and it should have been swift. But it's not. Benjamin says, these are our guys we're going to protect them. When Christ is king, we say, look, let judgment begin with the household of God. We're going to humble ourselves and repent. An eighth characteristic here of, of, a, of a land where there's no king and there's moral decay, the punishment is unrestrained. The punishment that deals with wickedness becomes unrestrained. 
you can read chapter 20, but essentially there in, in verses 18 through 48, you see the, the civil war take place. And, and God makes some appearances in the chapter, but his responses are sometimes vague. They're much shorter than they were in the book of, of Joshua. Both sides suffer these huge casualties. Everyone is brutal. There's a horrible slaughter. And by the end, the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. Justice has gone way beyond the scope of what the sin was, and now they're in danger of losing a tribe of Israel. And then the ninth thing that we see, the ninth thing that we see of a sign of moral decay in this culture, morality is practiced selectively. Boy, you read through chapter 21, and it is just bizarre. It, they, they say, well, it'd be wrong to break an oath, but it's not wrong to slaughter the inhabitants of a town. It'd be wrong to break an oath to give our daughters to them, but it's not wrong for us to, to kidnap a bunch of women and force them to marry the Benjamites. The morality is perverse, and morality is very selective. When Christ is our king, when Christ is our king, we practice morality no matter what the cost to us. We live in a God-glorifying way. Now we come to the end of the book of Judges. And where things stand at the end of Judges, there is no doubt in the reader's mind that God is needed. What has happened here is horrific. It is the inevitable downward spiral that takes place when there's no king. Only when Christ is my king, only when I submit to him and recognize him not just as, as a savior, but as my Lord, completely in charge of my life, only when that takes place, can I live a consistently moral and God-glorifying life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, our hearts are heavy as we come to this story. We recognize in it uh, terrible wickedness and, and evil. And, and yet, Father, we recognize that this wickedness is not out there, and not out there in our culture. This, this wickedness exists in, in my heart, this, this temptation to, to pursue my my own desires and, and ends and, and flesh and, and self, uh, self-reference in terms of morality. Father, please help us turn from that. Help us to look to your law, to your word, and to find life in there as we submit to Christ through faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.